Welcome to Reading Between the Lines, the People's Friends story podcast in association with the Odd Fellows. Each episode, a few of us from the Friend team, along with some special guests, will delve into our archives to find a story to read, and then we'll all sit down for a wee chat about it. Make yourself a cup of tea, pull up a chair, and come join us. This episode, we're reading Debts of Honour, the story of a shopkeeper's clever trick by Humphrey Chalmers. This story was first published in The People's Friend in January 1913 and is read for us by Friend Features Editor Alex. Over to Alex. It's all up, said Mr Hughes, and covered his face with his hands as he sat with his account books in the parlour above his shop. Mrs. Hughes put down her sewing and came behind him, putting her arm around his neck. How bad is it really, dear? she asked. As bad as it can be, replied her husband. Unless I can get in 150 by this day fortnight, there's nothing for it but to sell up. To borrow more would only mean bankruptcy. We'll stand clear, but with nothing over. Well, it might be worse now, mightn't it? whispered Mrs. Hughes. We mightn't be able to sell clear. And perhaps... One never knows. Some of these outstanding bills may be paid. (sighs) No fear of them. They're bad debts. Confound the rascally snobs. They'll pay their debts of honour, their losses at bridge and races, but the poor tradesman's bill can wait. And if he presses it, it's beastly cheek and insolence. And they tell one another not to deal with him anymore. It's no good, dearie. Nobody taking over the business would give me 10% from my book debts. To enforce payment would just ruin a newcomer, and, to tell the truth, half of them could not be enforced, they'd been standing so long. I don't care so much for myself, he continued, but there is you and there's Artie. He'll be home from his vacation tomorrow, and I can't send him back to the university again. I'll have to leave without taking his degree. Well, dear, soothed Mrs Hughes, you've done your best by him. He's had a better education than most young men. I'm afraid it's not much good to him. If he had taken his degree in commerce, he might have dropped into a good situation. But with an unfinished course, who'll have him? Now, sweetheart, don't look on the dark side. Something will open up for Artie, and there will be some little corner for us two old fogies. Benjamin Hughes was a furniture dealer in a middling-sized town some 30 miles from London. He had married late in life a woman some 10 years his junior. Arthur was their only child, and by dint of many an economy... He had been sent to Birmingham University, where he hoped to take the degree in commerce which is granted by that institution. The furniture business, however, had been going from bad to worse for a considerable number of years. If the truth must be told, Benjamin Hughes had grown rather too old for the requirements of present-day trade. He had built up a high-class business in earlier, easier times, but now with the competition of the big London houses, with their enormous selections and their free delivery 50 miles from town, taken his best trade from him. The only business he now did in high-class goods was with those whose chief requirement was long credit, and that was far from being a profitable line for Mr Hughes. Arthur had repeatedly advised his father to go in for a more popular type of business on a cash basis, but Benjamin was too old to change, even if he had been able to raise the necessary capital. And so the end had come. But how was Arthur to be met on the morrow? The young man was keen upon his studies, and his hopes of distinction at the close of his next session were high. 
It would be a terrible blow to find that there would be no next session for him. But there was no help for it. And so, when he arrived next day, he soon guessed from his father's constraints and the traces of tears on his mother's face that there was something sadly wrong. After tea, the story was told, the voice of old Benjamin frequently breaking in the telling. And so, Artie, he concluded, your old dad's come to the end of his tether and has to own himself a failure. Arthur sat quiet for a few moments, then he looked up and replied, you are never to say a word like that again. You are no failure either to mother or to me. Now let's leave all this bother for one night while we have a game of Ludo like we used to. And tomorrow, if you'll let me, I'll have a good look into things and see if we can't do something to save the situation. So the little chess table was got out and the three sat down to Ludo, at which game each was so ruthless in sending the others home that the greater troubles of the family were, for the time at least, forgotten. After breakfast next morning, father and son had a long talk about the state of affairs. Then Arthur settled down to a day's work in carefully going through the books of the business. He found that matters were exactly as Benjamin Hughes had described them. The business was only solvent for an immediate winding up unless the book debts could be got in. But if even 50% of those could be collected, it might be possible to launch out on modern lines. When he arrived at this conclusion, Arthur sat for a while in deep thought. He fancied he saw the way out, only he had to reckon with his father, who was too set upon his old ways to agree readily with any revolutionary proposal. He eventually decided to take a bold course. Well, what do you think of it? Asked Benjamin as they gathered together round the supper table. Hopeless, eh? No, I wouldn't say that, replied Arthur. In fact, Dad, I think so well of the old firm that I want you to take me into partnership with you. I can't go back to Birmingham, and I doubt whether I can get any very decent berth for some time. Still, that can wait for a few days. What I want you to do now, Dad, is to take Mother with you and just run down for a fortnight to Brighton, leaving me in charge. You both need a rest. I'll mind the shop while you're away, and then when you come back strong and hearty, we'll face the music together. And, he added, I have an idea it won't be such a very bad tune after all. But what are you going to do, Artie? Why, mind the shop, as I said. Oh yes, that's all very well, but what's your plan? Hope you're not going to do anything rash. My dear father, I'll neither borrow money nor lend it. So much I can tell you. But look here, you spent a lot of money to give me a first-class commercial education. That was an investment. And now the question is, will you give that investment a chance? Or do you think it as bad as these book debts? No, but... Now father, please. I'll not make things worse, I promise that but I want a free hand to prove that your money wasn't quite thrown away at Birmingham. With a mother's simple trust in her only son, Mrs. Hughes added her persuasions to those of Arthur. So what could Benjamin do but surrender? Next morning, Arthur stood in the door of the shop and waved his farewell as his parents drove off in a cab to the station. Then he turned and surveyed his charge with all the pride of a young lieutenant when he steps on the bridge to take command of his first torpedo boat. He visited the workshop, directed the assistant in some particulars, and retired into the little glass-walled counting house for a few minutes, just to revel in the delightful sensation of responsibility. But he did not stay there long. 
Emerging, he went upstairs to the house and returned with his typewriter, one of the investments he had made in college. This he placed on the desk, and after a few minutes thought, began to tap on its keys. He was a quick typist, but he continued long over his task, and the afternoon found him still at it, with a growing pile of finished letters on one side of him. These epistles differed only in details, so that one may serve for a specimen of all. Dear Madam, I have the honour to inform you that a friend, wishing to make a present to you, has just paid your account of £21, 17 shillings and sixpence, which has been owing to us for four and a half years. In the event of your not desiring to accept this present, we would undertake to refund the money upon the receipt of your remittance. Meanwhile, we enclose receipt. We are reorganising our business upon thoroughly modern lines, terms strictly cash, and hope to be honoured with continuance of your esteemed patronage. We remain your obedient servants, Benjamin Hughes and Son. To the Honourable Georgina Rossiter Robinson, Warfury Court. Arthur paused once or twice and dubiously considered the above signature. Well, he assured himself, it's only anticipating events. And anyhow, if the worst comes to the worst, it will help me to take the blame off Dad's shoulders. But oh, Dad, wouldn't your hair curl if you could only see these epistles? In the evening, Arthur posted all his letters, read a little and retired to bed. But it was a long time before sleep visited him. With the night watches, he began to doubt the wisdom of his action. What if the debtors accepted their supposed presence with thanks? Even then there would be little harm done, for he quite agreed with his father that 10% was a liberal estimate of the value of the book debts of the firm to any possible purchaser of the business. Truly, Benjamin Hughes had been very remiss. But then he had been trained in older, quieter, more trustful methods than those of today. But suppose Arthur had only thrown away that possible 10%. What then? The age of 21 is hopeful, confident, optimistic, often too rash. But at the same time, it is, under conducive circumstances, more anxious, brooding and pessimistic than any other. So Arthur tossed and fretted as he thought of the possible loss. Anon became sleepy and started broad awake again at the rosy vision of 30% coming in, 40%, perhaps even 50 His father was probably right when he guessed that his debtors, the stars and would-be stars of the rather vulgar local society of the early 20th century, while utterly careless of the needs of a mere tradesman, would be punctilious in the discharge of their debts of honour. Anyhow, he had done his best to turn these particular trade debts into debts of honour. He must succeed. Of course he must. But yet perhaps he had miscalculated. Oh, confound it. And he would turn over on his other side for a spell. In the end, Arthur slept, for even worry cannot keep 21 awake forever. But he rose in the morning to a sense of impending disaster. He could scarcely touch his breakfast as he thought of how, at that very moment, his letters were probably being opened and read, and perhaps laughed at. He entered the shop, fidgeted about, knocked over a mirror and broke it, and retired to the counting house, where he spent two hours of agony trying to read his morning paper, automatically summing up columns in the books, or simply sitting with his elbows on the desk, holding his throbbing head between his palms. It was just after eleven that things began to change. A pair-horsed carriage drove up to the door of the shop, 
and from the counting house Arthur could discern the figure of the Honourable Georgina Rossiter Robinson, as usual rather overdressed, sitting up very straight and stern-looking. Whilst he was screwing up his courage to go out to the carriage, the footman descended, and taking a letter from his mistress, entered the shop. Arthur came forward and opened the missive in fear and trembling. I am to wait for an answer in writing, said the footman. Arthur read. The Honourable Georgina Roster Robinson is very much annoyed by the impertinent act stated in your communication. She encloses a cheque, post-dated 10 days, for £21, 17 shillings and sixpence, and will be obliged by a fresh receipt. She also desires to know the name of the person who presumed to insult her in such a disgraceful manner and wishes to express her surprise and disgust at your permitting it. Arthur darted into the counting house and scribbled a note, which he enclosed in an envelope with the old receipt and handed to the waiting footman. The note ran, Dear Madam, we have to thank you for your kind remittance. We shall see that the money is refunded to the donor. We regret that, as the donor desired to remain anonymous, we are in honour bound not to disclose his identity. A fresh receipt will be sent to you as soon as your cheque has been honoured by the bank. Regretting that we should have been parties to any act of seeming discourtesy, we are your obedient servants, Benjamin Hughes and Son. As the carriage drove on, Arthur hugged himself. This, for a start, was not bad. But he had not long opportunity for such thoughts before the tumultuous appearance of Captain Raymond Jarrett. This gentleman was also in his way a leader. He hunted much, he was president of the two local coursing clubs, to which he annually presented cups for competition. He subscribed to all local sports, and, in fine, cut a big dash on the lawn and neighbourhood when he was not in Paris or attending races. He ramped into the shop and roared, Hughes! Hughes! Where the dickens are you, Hughes? Arthur met him. My father has just gone away for a short holiday, but I shall be glad to do anything for you in his absence. Here, cried the captain, producing Arthur's letter and receipt. What blank impudence is this? Tell me what double-blanked scoundrel has insulted me, and I'll horsewhip the dirty cad. Treats me as a beggarly pauper, does he? Here, take your doubly qualified, filthy money, and be blanked to him and you. Arthur picked up the money, some ten pounds, from the table on which it had been flung. Many thanks, sir. I hope you will not blame us for your friend's action. You see, the bill is very long overdue and we happen to be very short. However, we shall take care that your friend is refunded. Friend B, tell me who he is and I'll pitch him into the river. But Arthur was suavely strong on his obligation and honour not to reveal the name of the payer of the bill, and Captain Jarrett had to retire, exuding profanity. From that time, there was a pretty constant succession of irate customers. Some paid cash, some paid cheques, some offered bills at one month, two months, three months and Arthur accepted them all where there was reasonable security. But in every case where the payment of cash was deferred, he refused to give a fresh receipt in place of the one sent the previous night, until the money was actually in the hands of his father or himself. Just as the shop was shut for the night, the evening post came, bringing a budget of letters. Wrathful letters they were, most of them, but a large proportion contained money and Arthur gloated over his growing heap of cheques and post office orders. Some of the letters sent money on account, promising to pay the remainder within a certain time, 
on condition that the anonymous donor had his money instantly refunded. These Arthur put aside for special reply. Others again simply notified acceptance of the gift, with or without thanks, and some of these came from people whose names surprised Arthur. Still, he took the bad with the good, and dwelt for a little while specially upon a pathetic little note requesting him to convey the thanks of the writer to her unknown benefactor. She was a poor widow who eked out a living for herself and family by taking boarders. She had been forced to renew much of her furniture on credit, and soft-hearted Benjamin Hughes had really been very lenient with her, allowing her much more credit than purely business principles would have admitted. Arthur understood this. Good old dad, he murmured. I can't blame you for being kind to Mrs. Wilkes, and I think you'll forgive me for letting her off altogether. He set himself to count up the day's gains. In cash, checks, money orders, and negotiable bills, he had already netted 30% of the outstanding debts. What a blessed thing is a sense of honour, he observed as he turned to reconsider the promises and appraise their value. Then he sat down to compose a letter to his father. Dear Dad, I've been collecting some of your worst book debts. Up to the present, I've been pretty successful. I enclose a number of bills I've accepted. Please endorse them in return and I'll get the bank to discount them at once. If I can see a right, we shall be well out of the wood in a few days. Now don't come home yet. Get all the good you can out of your holiday and please trust me a little bit longer. Hurrah for the commercial department at Brum. Love to mums, your loving son, Arthur Hughes. Arthur again slept badly overnight, but this time it was because of sheer gladness of heart. He had really done a service for his father and was showing that he was fit for something after all the money spent on his education. The following day was a repetition of the one before it and brought in another 20% of the outstanding money. After that, things became quieter. But when, at the end of the week, Arthur wrote to his father announcing that he had realised 75%, Benjamin wired that he was coming home to see the miracle worker. He arrived with Mrs Hughes just in time to find Mrs Delamere Burtonshaw, one of his most hopeless customers, paying in full an account which had been kept going for many years by small payments, which were always negatived by fresh purchases. Up till then he had scarcely believed his good fortune, but after that he could believe anything. But when Arthur showed him the bank book and the cheques, orders and cash still waiting to be paid in, he broke down. The old business is saved, he sobbed. Thank God for Artie. Later in the evening, he laughed long as he heard the story of how the money had been secured. But, he objected at last, what are we to do next? Our market with these people is spoiled. I'm not so sure of that, said Arthur. Anyhow, it didn't pay on the old lines, and they're all warned it's to be cash now. But we've capital to go in for a new line altogether. More popular and so on. Let me help you, Dad, and we'll see. You've earned a partnership, I guess, Artie, said Benjamin. And if you don't mind beginning with a poor business of this sort after college, you can run it your own way. And so it was done, and the firm of Benjamin Hughes & Son is now the most prosperous both on popular and high-class lines in the home counties. Reading Between the Lines is proud to be sponsored by Friendship Society The Oddfellows. We recently asked some members of The Oddfellows to call in and let us know what qualities they look for in a friend, 
and we're delighted to be able to share some of their answers. Hi, I'm Jane, an Oddfellows member from Auckland. For me, a friend is someone who makes me smile and makes me feel better about myself. Hi, this is Denise, an Oddfellows member from the Wirral. A friend is, is somebody who's got a lovely soft shoulder to cry on and who shares in your sorrow or happiness. Hello, my name is Keith and I'm a member of the Richmond, Surrey branch of the Oddfellows. A friend is one who will give you a hug during difficult times. True friendships provide us with memories that we cherish for a lifetime. They help us to grow and become better people. They help us to make a better society. For over 200 years, the Oddfellows has helped its members forge friendships and offered help in times of need. So why not give them a call today on 0800 028 1810 for a free information pack or visit oddfellows.co.uk to find your nearest branch. Everyone's welcome. Now, let me top up my tea, grab some of my friends, and we'll have that wee chat about the story you've just heard. That was Debts of Honour, the story of a shopkeeper's clever trick by Humphrey Chalmers. That story was first published in The People's Friend in January 1913 and was read for us by Features Editor Alex. Features Editor Alex um, can't join us just now, but um, he has sent an able deputy in his place. We have Lisa from the Features team. Hello, Lisa. Hiya. And we're also joined by Abby from the Fiction team. Hello, Abby. Hello. And Barry from the DC Thompson Archives. Hello, Barry. Hello. It's the enthusiasm that you bring to proceedings that I'm <laughs> going to miss, Barry. Is it? Is it really? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Debts of Honour, what did we think of this story? Do we think that the main character, Mr. Hughes, is just a terrible businessman and he probably should have been allowed to go out of business quietly? Uh, or are we supposed to sympathise with him? I did find myself not really sympathising all that much with him as a person who has just let people accrue huge debts. I didn't sympathise at all. Oh, really? I'm glad it wasn't just me, because no. I was feeling a bit heartless. You monsters. Yeah, I feel like it's <laughs> lucky that he's got a son that has his head screwed on and was able to say, like, okay, this is how we can fix things, because otherwise his business would have just folded. And it's... Yeah. <laughs> That's so interesting, because I had the opposite reaction. Like, I really oh, sympathise with the characters, yeah. And Barry, I'm guessing, by declaring us monsters, you were on the sympathetic you side heartless of the coin. Yeah, I mean, if you read enough 19th century fiction, you realise that the shopkeepers really do get a bad deal. I mean, everyone buys everything on credit. That's how the upper classes seem to get by. Um, and the fact that they hadn't settled uh, their debts. I mean, they seem to be predominantly upper class in this. Um, seem to be a, a warning about them. So, yeah, I sympathise with Mr. Hughes. This is good. We have a clear divide on the panel <laughs> here. This should provide plenty of conflict for this episode. I did think it was quite funny. I thought the way it is resolved is quite funny in that the son comes home and devises a way of manipulating the upper class people who are perfectly fine to live on debt. But as soon as you um, suggest that that's what they're doing... They're kind of like, oh no, that's a, that's not a thing I can allow to happen. I have to fix this now. It was funny. It was clever as well. I enjoyed that. It was clever. It's quite sneaky. It was the the story of a shopkeeper's clever trick, as uh, the subtitle tells us. 
although he wasn't really a shopkeeper, he was just a, wasn't he a student at this point? So he's like the intern. He's the intern's clever trick. He went from a student to being partner in the business, so he's done all right for himself. <laughs> well, can I so can I just can I put it to you guys then? Um, if I change one slight detail about the name of the author, whether it would change your minds. So this was actually Reverend Humphrey Chalmers that wrote this. Mm, a man of the cloth. So that maybe change the kind of moral of the story? I think it does. Yeah, is it more punishing people that don't pay their debts uh, <laughs> rather than uh, the story of how someone got their money back? Maybe. I mean, I just take it as Mr. Hughes is kind of quite a meek, mild kind of a guy who's done his best, worked hard, and has just been done over by the tops. <laughs> I got the impression that the business was doing well previously, maybe when that kind of business model was what you did. Mm -hmm. But obviously now Mr. Hughes is, he's not really up to date on his, on his business, <laughs> um, <laughs> business lessons and ideas. So when his son takes over, he kind of like modernizes it for the time. Um, and yeah, I, I kind of liked that idea of um, business changing during that time, I'm not sure if that was that was what was going on around that time um, when it was written, but yeah, I thought it reflected what's going on right now um, with the idea that um, the competition from London, big London houses, and they've got free delivery and all of that kind of thing, and it was kind of driving the smaller businesses out of out of business um, yeah. so I enjoyed that kind of like parallel between then and now where you've got like big corporations that are kind of taking over the high streets and or online especially I did I was interested in some of the characters that uh, come in to settle their debts uh, in particular the kind of pompous bloviating military officer who comes in and is threatening uh, the the premise of it of course being that someone has paid his debt for him um and he he comes in to complain about that and i thought the kind of caricature of british army officers from round about this time period i thought that fitted it incredibly well and i could really easily imagine that character kind of bursting in there and is is buttons straining against his belly <laughs> yelling and screaming about fighting people he's like the Rafe Fiennes character from um, Curse of the Were-Rabbit <laughs> <laughs> that's all I heard of me yeah no I just like the, the language used in it as well because like, the, there was one of the I think it's the person you were just talking about Ian um, and he's going what blank impudence is this mm. tell me what double blank scoundrel has insulted me and I'll horsewhip the dirty cad <laughs> It's just very of its time, isn't it? You wouldn't speak like that now. <laughs> Captain Jarrett. Captain Raymond Jarrett. Um, actually, Alex and I, when Alex was recording the story, Alex and I had a discussion about whether that is um, censorship and whether it wasn't meant to be the word blank. It was meant to be an another much worse word he was using. And either he had censored it himself or the, uh, the <laughs> publication had censored it before it was published. That's quite funny because you would think they would just change the word mm -hmm. instead of putting blank. Yeah, yeah. 
It's the sort of in-print equivalent of bleeping swearing yeah. in television shows. Oh, I think we've seen this before, have we not? You either use a dash or the word blank. I'm sure we've come across this in the podcast once before. I think, we, I think we've come across the dash because it gets used a lot. There was that weird thing in the, in the 1900s where, in the 1800s where they would dash out like um, place names and stuff. And it seemed like it had been censored for some reason and that no one could fathom. But I'm sure there has been profanity in the past that's been censored in some of these stories. I think the blank is new because I've, I found it incredibly funny upon discovering it there. <laughs> yeah. It must have been funny to read that aloud. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think Alex had a couple of goes at it before he figured out what was meant to be happening. One of the, the word choice I found so- stood out for me was that when Captain Jarrett arrived he ramped into the shop and I've never heard the word ramped used in that way No, neither have I It kind of gave me this impression of him being like a tiny guy (laughs) (laughs) barreling into the place just kind of making that noise that Velma makes in (laughs) Scooby-Doo I also liked the the description of him leaving the place exuding profanity That's great. <laughs> that is my favourite line. Yeah. <laughs> As a person who often exudes profanity. There was a part where they almost... It was... The moment was there when one of them could have said, I'd like to speak to the manager. <laughs> <laughs> Captain Callan Janet yeah. ramped into the office. <laughs> I loved um, the woman who arrives, or the lady that arrives in, in her carriage, or... I think she arrives in a carriage. Yeah. Um, with the letter. And, sends a and then sits a footman in, so she doesn't actually go and speak to him, but she is there. <laughs> and she demands a response in writing as well. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to know how that conversation went with the foot with the driver and the footman. Like how did she did she say, Yes, I'd like you to take me to this shop and then I'd like you to go in with the letter, deliver the letter, and then bring the letter back to me. <laughs> <laughs> Abby, you just know that this is a, this is life. That's what he does. It's just it goes with the territory. Wanders around looking defeated. Yeah. <laughs> Emissary for Karen. <laughs> I did. This is another reason we'll, we'll get back to why I am completely unsympathetic to Mister Hughes's plight. Um, he's got no money, right? His business is failing. the The doors are half shut. His son arrives and says, "I think I've got an idea how to fix it." Take you off on holiday for a couple of weeks, um, and I'll fix this. Where is he getting the money for that? <laughs> Has he really not got any money? Is that the is that the rainy day fund he's broken into? Wow, this man has worked all his life, and he's not allowed a couple of weeks in Brighton. <laughs> ah, monster you are, Macdonald. It is spare. I'm revealing my true colours. You really are. <laughs> Shocking. He might have been staying with family. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> See, I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily call that a holiday so much as an ordeal. <laughs> wow. Maybe I do feel sorry for him after all. <laughs> so, what do we think about Arthur as a character? Um, I think it would have been very easy for that character to be quite smarmy um, as a as a character that has gone off to better himself at university and come back and dear old dad is in trouble and he has to sort of swoop in and rescue him. I think it would have been very easy to make him even accidentally quite a snooty person. And I think that the 
the Reverend managed to avoid that quite well because uh, it it doesn't really come close to the sort of moralizing that you might think would happen where he would come back and say, oh, well, you know, you shouldn't have been doing that or um, this is your fault for X, Y, or Z. I thought that the relationship between them seemed to be very sort of supportive. He's come back and he's concerned about the parents and they say, oh, we can't send you back to university. And it's, well, that doesn't really matter. I can give you a hand in the business and blah, blah, blah. Um, I thought that was quite a a nice dynamic mm-hmm. for them to have. Yeah, and the, the, it just seemed caring, the point of view, that he was losing sleep over it and, oh, have I done the right thing? Like, what if I've kind of done made things even worse with doing this and just kind of made him a bit more relatable rather than just some kind of caricature almost? That really fleshed him out, didn't it? I mean, yeah, that bit where he had, yeah. he had this flash of inspiration, but then the doubts. Mm-hmm. I thought that really worked well. Yeah. Seeing if, if he'd just gone into this full throttle and was determined that it was going to work and was very pleased with himself. It's a very different story, but yeah. I think just that, those couple of paragraphs made the difference. Mm-hmm. I agree. The other character I was curious about again was the Captain Jarrett one, and just just because this is 1913 and it's such a very unflattering caricature of a, an army officer, and I just wonder whether this would have happened 18 months down the line, whether this was would have made the made the cut in, in the friend. I have my doubts. Yeah, I can't see it. I think from the some of the stories that we've looked at, um, not necessarily in the podcast, but we've published a couple of stories previously on the website, and then um, we did a special a couple of years back with fiction from that era, and it's all very positive to the point of jingoism, um, especially once the war has been uh, going for a little while. They they don't really want to portray anybody that's off fighting in Europe uh, in, an, in an unflattering light. I imagine Captain Jarrett has gout and therefore can't go <laughs> oh. to the front line. He saw action in Crimea and probably the Boer War as well, so you know he's he's done his time. <laughs> in between times, too much port and swan. <laughs> All shot himself, not the port, but you know. <laughs> So has the Reverend Humphrey Chalmers written anything else for the People's Friend that you could find? Um, he's written for DC Thompson. He, uh, there was a, one of the six penny books was advertised. I did see that. He'd been writing for quite a while. Um, I was going to say he's a polymath. He's not. He just seems to have had his fingers on a lot of pies. He was a, a purser on a ferry somewhere on the west the West Coast for a long time, uh, jacked that in, wrote a book about it, seemed to have done pretty well, got some really good reviews, and then he seems to have joined the church at some point and just kept on writing. He also stood for Parliament, he was he stood for election in air in 1916, and he was standing on, um, his party was all for pacifism and not appeasement exactly, but uh, mm-hmm. a, a they wanted to bring about peace through negotiation rather than war. So, yeah. um, obviously, a man of principles, mm-hmm. um, probably quite a brave guy at that time, I think, to have taken that particular platform. Do you think that that's maybe a thing that's coloured how Captain Jarrett appears in this story? Um, I mean, maybe. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a hard one to say. I mean, we all recognise the caricature and 
we, if you've read any of the DC Thompson comics, there was always a mad old retired colonel somewhere with a blunderbuss. You know, <laughs> he, this this guy just fits the bill. You know, <laughs> whatever that is, whether it's PTSD or whether it's just their temperament, I don't know. But um, there's usually one kicking about, and this, you know, I don't know. I don't think that it really has. I think uh, Captain Jarrett and was just one of his class. I think a common kind of literary feature. Yeah, and obviously, you know, if he's he walks in with a riding crop or whatever and is predisposed to violence anyway, adds a bit of threat, I suppose. <laughs> there was a similar story. I mean, this is obviously, I don't know what was going on in 1913. I don't know if there was some sort of depression, but there was a similar story the week after I spotted almost exactly the same dear old mum and dad on, on the downers, you know, just about to be evicted. And uh, it, was, it wasn't their son this time, it was a surrogate father. Son steps in and does the right thing and, and saves the day. So it was a very popular trope or story type. I guess people would be living kind of on the the edge of bankruptcy quite a bit. I mean, it, there'll be folk that are not upper echelon business people um, that that's business really depended on folk paying their bills and. It's entirely out of your hands whether they do or don't. So it might be a familiar scenario for people that were reading the magazine. I think it may well have been, especially maybe some of older readers who grew up with this system in place. Um, I, I did a bit of reading around it. I wasn't entirely sure I've got the legality nailed down, but I think when it comes to this kind of thing where you've been offered credit... Um, I'm not sure it's even legally enforceable. I don't know how they would go about actually reclaiming that without getting solicitors involved, or bailiffs. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, that would probably be costly as well. Probably just not even worth it, quite frankly. Yeah, a long and expensive process. Yeah, yeah. That was one thing I wanted to ask was how much money... Because uh, it obviously mentions the figures quite a bit in the story. So I wondered how much money that would equate to nowadays. Does anyone know? <laughs> Oof. No. We're, we're all too young for that. <laughs> Was it £21, 17 shillings and sixpence is the... There is a website that does this stuff for you. I forget what it's called. I'm, gonna, I'm going to look it up as we're recording. Bear with us, listeners. Uh, Ian's on his web. Yeah. <laughs> there'll be a small... Um, there'll be Muzak playing over <laughs> it. The, the girl from Ipanema or something like that. What what is your guess for what this will be? Any guesses? I would be wildly inaccurate. I think. <laughs> I'll say I'll go into triple triple figures. <laughs> three hundred three hundred pounds more. In twenty seventeen, this is worth uh, approximately one thousand two hundred ninety pounds and forty five pence. Wow! wow. Okay. Um, or uh, as a comparison, um, two cows. <laughs> uh, f- 40 stones of wool, 17 quarters of wheat, or 66 days' wages for a skilled tradesman. I'd take two cows. You can't tax that. Wow. So no wonder they needed the money back. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a lot of money. I'm, I'm Now I am coming round to the idea that we should feel sorry for this guy because that's <laughs> a ton of cash. It's a lot of money. And that was only one bill. <laughs> what were they buying? Top-end furniture. Was all this furniture made out of ivory? <laughs> I mean, possibly at the time. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> bit ropey now, but 
1913. It was a different time. Coincidentally, I'm going to keep going back to that website because I want to know how many horses uh, he could have sold <laughs> for the amount that they owned. But I mean, I think I, I agree with Abby. I think this was a story that's very current. I mean, maybe it wouldn't appear exactly as it is, but like, you could imagine a story similar to this in The People's Friend, I think. Yeah, businesses in peril, it's a fairly universal sort of theme. Um, people not living up to their expectations, definitely a, a, a theme that could easily be explored no matter what the time period. And as, as we said, kind of the family relationship at the heart of it between Mr. Hughes and Mrs. Hughes and their son seems reasonably strong. I mean, it, it's fairly... Uh, it's not really sketched out in a great deal of detail, but you can kind of fill in the blanks with the way that they speak to one another and the the way that the the son is thinking about his parents while he's trying to solve this problem. And those sort of strong family relationships are obviously very important to um, the friend fiction. Um, it's the sort of thing that friend readers want to see when they pick up the magazine. Um, so we've kind of stolen your thunder a little bit there, Abby, about whether or not this story would appear in the magazine today. But um, I'm guessing that uh, there would be some recommendations for change, though, if someone submitted this to you today. Um, I actually can't really think of anything that I would change. Possibly the caricature of the the lady and the and the soldier, but um, yeah, I would downplay that a bit. <laughs> What would what would you make them, Abby? What, what would what would they be now? I'm not sure. Um, are there kind of yeah? Are there generic figures of fun in the way that those are kind of the caricature of you know a rich lady and a and a mad old soldier? I don't know what the equivalent would be of kind of those automatically the the figures that the readership would kind of say, oh yeah, I know that they would behave like that. I mean, I kind of, I think that's kind of a universal theme as well. I mean, <laughs> there's always going to be people that feel quite um, entitled to mm. um, and to get their own way when it's not necessarily fair. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, I mean, maybe the professions would be changed, but I think the <laughs> the kind of essence of the character would still stay the same. Yeah. The language would obviously be Updated a little, modernised. Yeah, and less blanks. We wouldn't have blanks in the magazine now. <laughs> you just let them drop F-bombs. No, we'd go straight for the profanity. <laughs> Exuding profanity. Yeah. I'm, I'm taking that phrase. That's what I'm taking from this story. You the should. phrase, exuding profanity. I know that should be on your business card, mate. That's what that should be. <laughs> Yeah, that's it was the email signature. Ian McDonald exudes profanity. <laughs> <laughs> it does. That was all of the fact that it was this was all made fair with a of guile and a little bit of humour, and it took down to the the non-paying upper classes down a peg or two. You know, it was done at their expense. You know, me mocking them. I think that all yeah. lent to the charm of the story. Yeah, I think it works because no one gets hurt in the story. Um, and another thing that kind of endears you to the Hughes is, is that they're not going to pursue the the widow who 
can't pay back and she kind of says like oh thank you so much for whoever paid the bill for me um you see that these are, are good people and they're just trying to get the money that they're owed and they're not hurting anyone by yeah. doing what they do even though even if it is a trick <laughs> mm-hmm. i mean it's not like artie sent the lads around to sort them out you know? it, was, <laughs> it was fairly innocuous don't worry dad i know a couple of guys that can help us okay uh so we will proceed directly to the section of the podcast where we give these stories ratings um these ratings will decide which story will be republished in the magazine so there is the possibility for us a 110 year old story to reappear in the magazine based on the scores that we've given it here and the scores that listeners have given it um, in podcast reviews and on our social channels Um, so Abby what do you think um, as a score out of 10 for this story I'm going to go really high with this one and give it a (laughs) 9 because I really did enjoy this story It's, it's well paced the characters are a likable, in my opinion, <laughs> in Barry's opinion, <laughs> um, and yeah, I just love the idea of the uh, the clever trick that he plays, and yeah, definitely give this one a nine. Excellent, um, Lisa. Don't let them bully you. <laughs> if you if you think Mister Hughes was a fool, you you go right ahead and give a, a rating that reflects that. Well, I do think he was a bit. Like, you know, he wasn't able to run his business as efficiently as you would have hoped for a businessman. <laughs> um, it was kind of just a bit, like, fortunate on his side that he had his son to kind of come to the rescue. But I, I did still enjoy the story. Um, I think, like, you know, like Abby was saying, that they were likeable and so on. So I think I would give it a seven. Okay. That's a strong score. Uh, Barry, what do you say? I'm also going to go for nine. Um, I really like this story as... Um, it's not as action-packed or as funny or as comical as some of the ones we've read, but there's a nice moral to it. And, I, and I'd forgotten about the part where he hadn't pursued the widow who couldn't afford that. That's a lovely, lovely sentiment. So, mm. yeah, nine. I have a suspicion that that has catapulted that story into the top two um, for possible reproduction in the magazine. So um, keep an eye out for that closer to the summer when this season of Reading Between the Lines is over. But for now, we will leave it there for this episode, so it just remains for me to say thank you to Alex for narrating that story, and to Abby, Lisa, and Barry for joining me for the discussion, and to you for listening. And until this week of friends gets together again for another story, from the friend to you, cheerio. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Reading Between the Lines. Subscribe in your podcast app today so you don't miss our next story, and check our previous episodes for more from the Friend Archives. We would be delighted if you were to recommend this podcast to your friends. If you don't already get The People's Friend, because you listen to Reading Between the Lines, you can now get your first 13 issues for just £6, and that special offer is available until May 31st, 2022. Check the episode notes for details and terms. And for more from The People's Friend, visit thepeoplesfriend.co.uk or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Haste you back. There's a dainty little journal that is read both far and near. 
It has had a host of rivals, still it stands without a peer. It is bright and entertaining from the first page to the end, and is known to its admirers as the dear old people's friend. A charming little journal is the friend. Of good things it is such a happy blend. That to read it at your leisure is a pleasure without measure. The friend to friends in trouble recommend. They won't be happy till they get the friend.